This podcast was created by the Arts and Junior Cycle team for the Junior Cycle Talks channel. Hello and welcome to this podcast. My name is Jane Miller. I'm an advisor on the Arts and Junior Cycle team. In this week's episode, we talk to award-winning author Dave Rudden, who has written the Knights of the Bar Dark Trilogy. Dave teaches creative writing and travels around the country talking to children and young people about writing, mental health and inspiration. Dave will tell us about his work, his writing process and what inspires him. We hope you enjoy listening. You're very welcome, Dave. Thanks for having me. Firstly, can you just introduce yourself and the work that you do and have done in the past? So my name's Dave Rudden. Uh, I am a former English teacher uh, who wrote a novel in 2014 now uh, called Knights of the Borrow Dark uh, that uh, sold to Puffin and came out in 2016 as part of a trilogy about a very stressed teenager from Mayo who was trying to save the world um, through his own anxiety. And yeah, since then, I've just been running around doing, I think I've done, as of yesterday, I've done 817 school visits uh, since Knights of the Borrow Dark came out. So it's been really great running running around and yelling about books and beards and crisps. I also teach creative writing workshops and I do sort of large scale visits. And I have a little writing school called Myth Makers, which works out of Molly. I kind of, because I have the background in teaching and because I'm super passionate about getting uh, kids writing, uh, it sort of naturally led to me teaching a lot of workshops on the side, which is good and really, really fun and sort of reminds me who I'm working for Mm. at the end of the day, because writing's Kind of, it's it can be lonely. You're gonna stuck in a room arguing with commas and stuff. Whereas um, teaching gets you out there and actually meeting readers, which yeah. is really important as well. That's lovely, Dave. And in relation to all of the talks that you give to students and and also to writers as well, you talk a lot about being a writer and how to become a writer. Yeah, I think for me it's about accessibility and it's about empowerment. Like I grew up in a tiny village in Cavan, and I loved reading and I loved writers, but I had no idea how one became a writer. And even now, I can really see that like the, the publishing industry is pretty opaque to anybody outside of it. And so if I can demystify writing and if I can show people that, and particularly kids, that writing is not something magic or special or some... Like, I know we all talk about writing being a talent, but I really try and push the idea that writing or creativity is just a muscle. Like, everybody can do it. Every career is creative. Like, it's not just Mm. reserved for people who tell stories. And anybody can do it. If you ever liked a movie or hated a movie, you you have a creative instinct in you because you looked at something and thought about changing it. That's great. And even in terms of your own inspiration, what had inspired you to start writing? Yeah, I always, I always wrote. It was sort of a, a reflex. Like I was that kid who handed in a, an English essay that was two pages longer than everyone else's. And the teacher was like, David, again. And so for me, I'm sort of conscious of a kind of a privilege there where for me, it's, it's, it's I don't want to say it's easy because a lot of the time what I produce isn't very good, but I do have to create constantly and like on long train journeys as a kid I would look out the window and populate the landscape with different monsters and things like that and so making the jump from playing these movies in my head to actually writing them down was not a huge jump for me but um uh, so I've always been inspired by the stories that I loved so I always read fantasy I loved horror and that finds its way into my work a lot and I actually when I'm in schools I tell kids to really pay attention to the things that they love and the things that they hate because that is inspiring them. I don't think it is. Like, 
by the time you're 12, you know what kind of stories you like and you know what kind of stories you hate. Uh, so I think that trying to convince kids to, to understand that they have taste is important. Yeah. What inspired you to have that kind of world? Is it all drawn from your own experience or the books that you read? Where did you get your ideas from? Yeah, I always tell people that like you are your first reader, so you should write the kind of book you would like to read. Mm. And I was always into fantasy and I was always into the horror side of fantasy. My favourite author is Terry Pratchett. And Terry Pratchett likely poked fun at all of the sort of fantasy tropes like the 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 hero with no doubt and the villains with no uh no more complexity or the villains with no nuance and so that to me is fantasy is often sort of like maligned because it's supposed to be very kind of black and white heroes are good villains are bad and actually i think it's all sort of shades of gray so uh so yes certainly if a story's ever frustrated you or annoyed you you should write your own version and that's very much what knights of the borrowed dark was for me because we've all read books where a kid usually like 12 or 13 gets powers and gets invited into a magical world and so my main character denison has has grown up reading these fantasy books and watching horror movies and he's not going to get suckered into thinking that he's a chosen one or thinking that he has a destiny uh, particularly when this is a world the world of Knights of the Borrowed Dark is a little darker mm-hmm. than your normal sort of fantasy the magic is terrifying slowly turns you to iron when you use it the monsters are horrifying creatures from another dimension um, and so Every sort of creative choice I made in the book is just a series of choices. Like an idea is just a choice. Um, Each choice was sort of, can I make this a little darker, a little weirder, a little more um, incisive? Where Because that's that's the Mm. kind of kid that I was. I would all sort of poke holes in things and and look for for flaws or look for the downsides. And that's, that is kind of Dennis as a character. And I think only looking back now after finishing the trilogy, Mm. a lot of it was about anxiety which I suffer very badly from yeah. and so does Denison although he doesn't know and Denison realising over the course of the books that actually poking flaws and things and looking for the downside is just you caring about stuff like anxiety and worry is just caring and so that actually doesn't uh, disqualify you from being a hero you know we always think of heroes as being certain and being always positive and always having hope and actually that's not how most people are and so I think the books aren't about like Denison sort of curing his anxiety or magically finding a way to be to be happier. It's about him realising this is a part of himself and actually it's kind of a benefit. Tell me about the clockwork three. Oh, they're gross. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the, the reason my monsters are shapeshifters is mm. because um, it lets me design them all from scratch. I get to write 100 horror movies in miniature. And my villains in the first book are called the clockwork three and they are tenebrous to these monsters. But they look like people. Because I don't think you need to be extremely scary to frighten a young person. I think you just need to be a little bit bigger and a little bit crueler. And so the man, there's a the man in the waistcoat who is just like arch cruel commentary. The woman in white who is sort of brute force and the opening boy who's a hurt kid. And it was only like years later I sort of realised I was writing about bullies because I was bullied very badly when I was a kid. And... The three sort of sides of a bully are sort of like, you know, it's the the hurtful comments, the, you know, the possibility of physical violence and then the hurt child that is powering it all. And so at the time, I didn't realise it, but like, I think you always write about the things that affect Mm. you and, and scare you. And writing about things allows you to hold them at arm's length. Like, I don't super love thinking about the time that I went through. 
But giving a variant of that to Denizen allowed me to explore it again and also allowed them to be defeated, which is the, the sort of neat, you know, fantasy book ending that you don't mm. often get in real life. And the Clockwork Three are sort of small and base and petty and they don't have a huge plan. They just like making other things miserable. And that was something that felt a little bit different than everything else that was out there. And also where you set it. Yeah. Well, What was it that made you set it in Ireland? Were you really determined to do that or did you have another setting for the book? Yeah, I I really wanted it to be set in Ireland because uh, my favourite, I guess, middle grade books when I was growing up was Adam is Foul. Because one, I'd never read a book where the kid was the villain, which is amazing. And those books just have an incredible wit and warmth and, and cinematography to them. And they used, as opposed to like, you know, you know, other books out then that would have been set in America or set in England. It was here and it was our magic and it was our myths and it was our vernacular. And that was really lovely for me. Can you tell us a little bit about strategies or approaches to writing? Yeah, so um, ever since having a child, I've had to be a lot more strict on myself in terms of like, I just don't have time to wait around for inspiration. So I have word goals that I hit like five days a week. And the reason I do a sort of a word goal rather than a time goal is because my schedule is all over the place. And so as long as I get my thousand words done five days a week, it doesn't matter if I do 300 words on a notes app when I'm waiting for the bus or 300 words on my laptop or on on a train or, you know, 500 words at my actual desk. And that probably sounds like quite a lot, but I've built up to that over like 10 or 15 years of writing what I would say to anybody who is looking to get into writing, set yourself an incredibly manageable goal, let's say 300 words a week, which is about an A4 page, and then get addicted to hitting that goal and then up that goal. So because it, you'll get this like gorgeous serotonin buzz from hitting your, your your goal. And then if you make your goal incrementally larger, like if you do, if you do a thousand words a week, by the end of a year, you have written 52,000 words, right? And a thousand words a week is like three or four pages, which and like everyone has a different life and everyone has different commitments. So I would never prescribe people a schedule because everyone has to make it work with their own life. But it's about repeatedly hitting a small goal. So it is better to undersell the goal and repeatedly hit it than it is to aim for the stars mm-hmm. and miss, basically. Yeah. Um, and like it's not a it's not a sprint it is a marathon it, being a writer is magical and it is lovely but it's also work and you treat it like work and you be good yeah. to yourself at the same time yeah. and how do you keep motivated then? How- um, I have to pay for nappies <laughs> uh, no I just I just love doing it and yeah. I'm really um, I'm really aware that this is a job that like very few people get to do and I'm very lucky to have it and that's not to say that there aren't days where I'm like I don't I've forgotten how to write. I don't know how to how to create anymore. And when when that happens, you take a break and you go and you read and you go and you you play a game or you 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 know, you you watch a movie, you you fill yourself up, mm. up again with story. Like the well of creativity every person has is finite, but it does regenerate. So when you feel used up, you take a break and you hit it again the next day. The only thing I'd say is don't leave it too long because writer's block does sort of calcify. So if you stop writing for six months, uh, if you stop writing for a week, it is easy enough to go back. If you stop for six months, it's much harder. So do take a break, be good to yourself, but get back on the horse. I'm mixing metaphors like crazy here, <laughs> but sure look. You use a lot of metaphors in the book as well and similes. I do. I, do. Um, I like, I grew up on, on Terry Pratchett, who yeah. was um, 
just an unbelievable um, wordsmith. Like I remember one of his, uh, he has a villain in one of his books and he describes the villain's smile geckoing across his face. It's such a weird phrase, but it's exactly like that sort of like movement of a little lizard across a rock. And so I really try and I suppose tune each sentence like a guitar string and find like the most beautiful and efficient way of saying something because I, I do think the reader's time is a gift and I want them to be like amused or delighted or grossed out by every sentence that I give them. I like I like looking at my book and saying there's no sentence here that is plain. There's no sentence here that is just a sort of a, a workhorse sentence. Everything has a little spark to it. Just even talking about here, a lot of the work that you do as well is about inspiring others to write. Why do you think it's really important for young people to read and write? The difference with books is that um, movies and TV shows will show you a character, but you are you are a few meters away from that character you're looking at through a lens you are you know you are you're not in the character's head in the way that a book can provide um there's no there's rarely a voiceover and things like that in movies and tv shows where a book is all voiceover with a book you are right up against that character's heart and that allows people of all ages to feel more empathy and to be really close to somebody when they're going through something and i really say that like mm-hmm. books are like empathy engines and it's through books I think more than movies and more than games that we really connect with people the connection post-covid is hugely hugely important one thing I'm really really into when I go into schools is creating that community where we all talk about the things we like and the things we don't like like having like 200 teenagers there and getting them all to talk about what they love you can see people go oh you like that as well and you like that and you like that and like if those connections exist after I leave then that's really really good Can you give any advice to teachers to encourage students to read more? What can teachers do? Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I know it is tough and I am conscious as a as a non-teacher to not sort of um, start telling teachers what to do because you have enough to be at. What I'll, what I'll say is some things that I have seen work in the various schools I've been, because I see, oh my God, the amazing work done by teachers across this country and other countries as well to encourage kids to read. Um, So certain things I've seen that have worked. Um, I do think author visits work. I think an author visit with a bit of prep works really well. So like telling the kids that like, okay, we've ordered a class set of these books from the library because libraries tend to have a lot of class sets and this author is coming in. Let's learn a bit about this author before they come in so you're prepared. That makes my job a lot easier but also gets the kids hyped up that they're going to meet the person who wrote the words that are in the book also listening to the students when they talk about the books that they like inviting them to recommend books maybe setting up a library council even if your library is just a few shelves in the school you know appointing a few students to be in charge of that or to talk to them about what books they would like to see because empowering kids giving them a bit of responsibility does get them really addicted to that feeling. Um, I've also seen like smart things like um, if you liked this book, here are books that are similar to that book. Um, What else? I see a lot of things like Reading Week, book quizzes and um, scavenger hunts and writing competitions in the school. Um, All of that, I think, can, can help. But building a culture does take time and it might be something you work on 
in one year all you might do is a really small pilot scheme for a competition and a Skype visit with an author and then next year you get a little bit more ambitious but these things like a snowball rolling down a hill they gain momentum and gain power. You've spoken a little bit about in the past about failure is part of being a writer. Failure is a huge part of writing. Um, Like your first draft you can look at it as a failure because it does not look like what it should in your head. But that's okay. You need to write that like bockety version before you go on and, and edit it and make it better. You will never write something that gets admitted on the first try. And I had, you know, 24 um, agents said no to Nights of the Bar Dark before one said yes. Um, even, you know, finding out that like the next word you're trying to use or the next moment you're trying to give your character just doesn't work and you have to find something is a mini rejection. So it's just part and parcel. And often like like the way hitting a wrong note helps you find the right one. Um, writing a bad version of your first novel will help you find the good one. So actually rejection is something you should almost revel in and enjoy because it's it's your chance to to tell the story to yourself and get it wrong before you have to get it right. Yeah, and that's why like the editing process, we always yeah. talk to students about how important editing and redrafting is and it's a vital part of the writing process as yeah. well. It's the most important Um like I when I go whenever I go into schools, I show them old versions of my draft where I'm like, here's the, the fact that I can't spell necessary. Here is a chapter where it says it's November, and my editor has put a comment saying it was October in the last chapter, Dave. And I'm like, oh no, um, you can't. You pick any book off the shelf. It has gone through at least ten drafts, right? And people don't talk enough about that. You assume that what somebody writes is what ends up on the uh, what what ends up on the printed page in the um. Uh, in the bookshop but that's just not how it works for anybody Nights of the Bar Dark I wrote I did a second draft I did I gave it to my friends they gave me some notes I did a third draft the third draft got me the agent I then did a fourth and fifth draft with the agent then it sold to Puffin and then I remember being so proud I'm like, okay finally I'm done with this book that I can't look at anymore and my uh, editor was like I find it very cute that you have titled the draft Nights of the Bar Dark <laughs> Final Draft because here at Puffin we did this the first draft. And then we did another six drafts, ranging from big structural drafts to minute, minuscule copy edits where you're arguing over every single M dash and every single like different synonym. And that's just the way it works. And I would urge like teachers, if you're if you're chatting to your students about this, look up what old versions of their favorite novels look like. Nothing is a first draft. And like that is okay. That's the way it should work. Dave, you're going to read something for us. I, um, so I'll just read the first the first page and a half. Um, this is the reading that I do in schools. Uh, it is gross. Kids seem to enjoy it. Um, and it's from Nights of the Borrowed Dark. It's chapter eight, The Taste of Glass. The woman in white was eating light bulbs. Simon couldn't take his eyes off her. It was horrible. She'd found a cupboard on the third floor corridor, about six metres from the closet in which Simon was hiding and had begun rifling through its contents. Blankets were experimentally sniffed and then idly tossed aside, forming lonely snowdrifts on the floor. A first aid kit had been emptied out as well, its contents separated with a toe and then methodically stamped apart. Now she was opening boxes of light bulbs, shaking their contents out into her palm and holding them up to her face before closing her teeth around their fragile domes. Crunch. It had taken Simon a moment to realise she wasn't looking for anything in the cupboard. 
She was just destroying whatever was in there. Why? He didn't know. There was no urgency to her movements and a strange look of amusement creased her skin. Unfortunately, that meant there was no indication of just how long she was going to stay there, blocking the corridor and Simon's only chance of escape. It was pure luck she hadn't caught him. A sudden, unexplainable feeling of dread had made him hide in a broom closet, cracking the door open a hair just in time to see her appear at the top of the stairs. Maybe he had heard her without even realising it. Maybe he'd felt her presence or the air her movements displaced. Maybe, maybe the animal part of his brain was taking over all of that prehistoric instinct and awareness you just didn't use in the modern world. Simon didn't know or care. All that mattered was that he hadn't been caught. Thank you. Oh, Dave, that was brilliant. Thank you so much. (laughs) I really, really appreciate it. And wish you the best of luck in the future. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this podcast, which was created by the Arts and Junior Cycle team for Junior Cycle Talks podcast channel. To hear more from Junior Cycle Talks, search for us on SoundCloud or anywhere you listen to your podcasts.